Hello, folks. It's Audrey, and you are listening to Why We Do the Work. Welcome back to Season 3. Last episode, we had some fun while we were out on location at Beyond Toxic's one-year fundraiser called Be Jazzy. We had some laughs and conversations with folks who support our organization, and we were out at Sylvan Ridge Winery. It's a beautiful winery right outside Eugene. And we wanted to bring you an episode that was engaging and a refresh from some of the heavy that we discuss on the show sometimes. As always, I would like to thank Beyond Toxics for sponsoring this podcast and a huge thank you to my pod partner, Crystal. As always, you can see the awesome work that the rest of the team does at beyondtoxics.org and you can always reach me at aab at beyondtoxics.org. I would also like to give a trigger warning. We do talk about cancer on this podcast. And if cancer triggers you, please take care of yourself. Today, I have the pleasure of being joined on the show by Mary O'Brien. Mary is one of the original founding members of Oregon Toxics Alliance, now known as Beyond Toxics. Mary has degrees in sociology, elementary education, and a doctorate in botany. For 40 years, Mary has worked with environmental organizations on pesticide reform, environmental law, and conservation of Forest Service and BLM public lands. Hey, Mary, go ahead and introduce yourself to the folks. Oh, thank you. I Hello to all of you. I'm here in southeastern Utah in a smallish kind of valley with a red rock tower to the east, a red rock cliff to the west, the Colorado River about two miles to the north, and some mountains that go up to 12,000 feet at the wow. southern end of the valley. It's a sunny day. There's snow up in the mountains after some rain. And I can picture Eugene in my mind because I lived there for 24 years before coming to Utah. Wow. I wonder if we lived there around the same time. I moved to Eugene in 93. How how long were you living in Eugene at that point? I lived in Eugene until 2004. Okay. So we were, so we, we were, we were overlapping. We sure were. Um, so Mary, it was so exciting to research you for this episode. One of the things that I read right off the bat was that you're from East LA, you're a preacher's daughter, and your mother worked on Skid Row. I also read that every, every year for two weeks, your family was able to stay at Kings Canyon National Park, where your dad preached at an outdoor non-denominational church, and he did this for two Sunday mornings. So you guys were able to stay out there for two weeks. Um, I mentioned that in a prelude to what I'm about to ask you, because to me, it seemed that you came from a background of making the world a better place. And my mom would say, then you found it. So I believe you're making the world a better place than you found it. Do you think that having the experiences in Kings Canyon ignited your interest to study and help preserve nature? Oh, absolutely. 
it was so amazing to take a trip out to this place from our little house in East Los Angeles that it was a little house that belonged to the church. And here you would go, we would go for two weeks each summer to a place that anyone could go, mm-hmm. a national park, and there were meadows and flowers and bears and rocks that had been scraped smooth by glaciers. And the King's River would run all night. And the thought that this belongs to everybody, anyone can walk in to a national park or a national forest or a Bureau of Land Management land or a national monument. And it's just, it changed my life, both in terms of wanting to help protect the world and in terms of being conscious that really we're just one species among many. Mm -hmm. Although we tend to act like we're the only species. (laughs) (laughs) We certainly do. We certainly do. So Mary, where is Kings Canyon exactly? And when you were out that way, do you have siblings? Were you, were you playing around out there with your siblings? Did you find friends? What was going on out there? It's actually in the southern part of the Sierra Nevadas. So it's more toward central California. So it was, we would get up in the morning before dawn to drive out to Kings Canyon National Park and we'd arrive by late afternoon. I think you'd get there faster now, (laughs) but the car was, I remember one time my dad said, I'm going to I'm going to rev this car up to 50 miles an hour. <laughs> we were like, whoa. <laughs> and my brother and sister were with us. My sister being two years older and my brother four years older. And when we grew up, we would remember the times at Kings Canyon National Park every summer in our childhood as absolutely the best parts of our childhood. By then, my brother was having a lot of trouble with drugs, actually. Mm -hmm. Um, But still, even so, he and my sister and I all agreed that was the best part of every summer. I bet that was a lot of fun being out there with your siblings like that. I grew up in the Air Force, and so um, I have a lot of fond memories of being in different places because my dad was in the service, so we got to travel around a lot. So it's nice to have memories with your siblings like that because, I don't know, siblings, it's a, it's a different kind of relationship than you have with anybody else. It is. And it's, you know, and your siblings are going to be there once the parents have gone. So it's nice to have these strong relationships with your siblings it's sad to me when people lose contact with their with their siblings and honestly I don't talk to my brothers as much as I should they live down in Texas and sometimes it's hard to be on that one way you know like it always having to reach out but I have a lot of fond memories of growing up with my brothers I'm the only girl I have four older brothers and then just oh my (laughs) (laughs) you were the baby and you were the only girl yep I was causing some ruckus I can tell you that right now by the time my parents got to me, they were like, okay, whatever. 
is, you know, my <laughs> oldest brother is 10 years older than me. So by the time it was me, they were like, okay, just very permissive in a way that they would not have been with my right. Brother. And the older siblings always think the baby got the best deal, right? <laughs> yes, we kind of did. We kind of did. <laughs> did. So Mary, you've done so much impactful work in your life. Um, and there were so many things to choose from as a researcher. Um, if it's okay with you, I'd like to share a few of those things as we move into our discussion today. Is that okay? Yeah, of course. <laughs> um, Mary was the Utah Forest Program Director for 17 years, and she handed that baton over in 2020. Um, the mission of this program is to safeguard the wonders of the Grand Canyon. She's also part of, and you'll have to remind me, Mary, if you're still part of Project 11, but Project 11 works to end the commercial permitting of hives of non-native honeybees on Forest Service and BLM lands, including in Oregon. Actually, it's called Project 1100. Oh, um, it is. I'm looking at my I'm looking at my notes right here. It is Project 1100. Sorry and the me. reason is kind of interesting because yeah. in Utah alone, there's 1,100 species of native bees, which is huge. California has about 1,400, and Arizona has about 1,300, and that's unusual. Oregon has less because most of your native bees, the biggest diversity is in, oddly enough, deserts and dry areas, but that's that's why the name is Project 1100. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for explaining all of it, um, especially about how many bees there are. I mean, you know, Beyond Toxics loves the bees. So thank you <laughs> for going in on that. Mary was also involved in helping Utah develop a beaver management plan for the first time so that beaver would be more easily moved to and supported by public lands rather than being killed for being a nuisance in irrigation ditches or next to roads. And it's just worth noting that Oregon is the only state that has their state flag with a beaver. You know, my, my girl goes to OSU. That's why it says OSU here in the notes. Um, because my girl goes to OSU. My my daughter just, we just put her off to OSU like four weeks ago. So she's starting to get to the point where she's in it. You know, it's lost. Some of its novelty has worn off as far as like being away from the parents for the first time. And she's um starting to get to where she's like, this isn't high school. And so you know, we're excited that she's a beaver and she stayed close, but most of my family are ducks. My yes. <laughs> everybody's a duck. My ex-husband's a duck. My husband's a duck. Duck, 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 duck. So I we work closely with a toxicology professor at OSU named Diana Rollman. And I was telling her about it. And she goes, Well, now you just be a platypus family. Yeah, so right. We're platypus family now. <laughs> There's I think it's still probably in the Eugene airport, the little st statue of a beaver who's trying to dress up like a duck. <laughs> and it has, it, on the statue, it has donned a mask and it has pinned feathers to itself. 
<laughs> and it's trying to, it really wants to be a duck, which is very insulting to um, <laughs> Oregon State, but very funny for Eugene. Yeah, you know, and we're getting into it. Like, you know, my husband, he's bought duck or beaver gear, gone to a beaver game now. You know, he's really supportive. I'm proud of him because he's like, he bleeds duck. He bleeds green and yellow. So <laughs> anyway, um, Monroe Mountain Working Group was also something that you were a part of. It was a 10-year collaboration to restore Aspen throughout a mountain, throughout a mountain where Aspen were not doing well. Tell us a little bit about Aspen, because from when I when I watched that video, it seems like you have a real, real soft spot in your heart for Aspen. Oh, Aspen's pretty amazing. It's a tree that is so unusual because when you see a stand of aspen trees, they're all one tree. Mm -hmm. They're all connected underground and it's what's called a clone. Okay. And so if if you ever see one aspen stand that's yellow, the trees, ha the leaves have turned yellow and right next to it, a stand that tree leaves are still green and haven't yet turned yellow in the fall. You know it's genetically two different trees, but there's one particular aspen clone in in Utah that's a couple of hundred acres and it's one tree. Oh, wow. So yeah, aspen <laughs> is pretty exciting. When you see an aspen stand, it's probably been there, if it's in the wild, probably for a thousand or more years. What? It's, wow. So there, people love aspen. It supports more kinds of birds and mammals and flowers and shrubs than any other forest type in the West because they tend to be where it's a little damp. Mm -hmm. So Aspen is pretty special to people in, I can't remember whether Aspen, I, yes, Aspen's in California, it's in Oregon, it's in Utah, it's in Colorado, at one time spread across the U.S., but now, not so. They're beautiful trees. Beautiful. They are beautiful trees. That was interesting because I had, ne I, I, there's no way I would have known that an aspen is one whole tree. Like that's, that is, I can't wait to share that with my family <laughs> and, and act like it's something that I looked up myself. <laughs> and one fun thing to show children uh -huh. is if you go up to an aspen tree, you know, it has the white. Trunk, mm -hmm. and you scrape that white away with your fingernail, you'll see green right under it. And so the tree is making food. It's photosynthesizing right through the white trunk and not just through the leaves. So it can keep making food in the winter, even when all the leaves are gone. So that's a fun thing to try the next time you see an aspen tree. Yeah. Yeah. I, I could tell you kind of really loved them when you were, you all were talking about them. Um, and now I have a, a huge respect for them because that a thousand something years, it could have been there. That's, yeah. that's 
That's crazy. That tree has heard and seen a whole lot of things. <laughs> yeah. So, um, Mary, I also read that you um, you taught students and volunteers how to identify native and non-native plants. What were you showing them about that? Were you showing them how to use them medicinally or just how to identify them? You know, actually, I'm not a specialist in medicinal plants. Often what I have been doing is documenting where native plants are in trouble. Mm -hmm. Sometimes non-native plants are really, really aggressive and can take over in an area. So it's important for people when they're looking at conditions on the land, on Bureau of Land Management lands or Forest Service lands, to be noticing how well the native plants are doing. Because there's many species of native plants. There's many fewer species of non-native plants, some of which are very kind of quiet and, and don't take over. But a few, like cheatgrass and star thistle, can take over the land and really push out the native plants. And when you lose your native plants, then you knew, you lose the pollinators that depend on those plants. You need lose birds that are special for whom certain native plants are their special food or habitat. So it's actually important to retain native plants where we can. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. So I, I had a group called Badass Botanists. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we we were we happened to be a number of women who were learning to identify these plants to help monitor conditions on the forest. And they liked that name. Yeah, I like that name. <laughs> the BBs. Yeah. The Badass Botanists. Um, right. So, Mary, those things just barely, barely touch the surface of all the amazing and accredited things that you've done throughout your lifetime. But today, we're going to focus on little old Eugene, Oregon. I love Eugene. I live now up in, in, in Portland, but I spent most of my adult life and raised three children down in West Eugene. Um, so Eugene is is really special to me. That's where my kids were born. And, and you know, it's just real special in my heart. So. I read that you moved to Eugene after completing your doctorate in botany, and that was in California. Um, was that the start of your years working in toxics reform? Absolutely. Actually, when I moved to Eugene, I had done all the field work and all the exams for my doctorate, but hadn't yet written up the dissertation. So here I was in Eugene, my husband, Obi, was teaching sociology at the University of Oregon, and I had a little extra time on my hands while I wrote the dissertation, and I saw the little office of Northwest Coalition for Alternatives to Pesticides in the upstairs of the growers market near the railroad station, mm -hmm. and I thought, well, I'll just tell them that I know there's problems with aerial herbicide spraying over plants and I know something about plants so I'll tell them I'll just volunteer for them 
and that's how I got started actually wow. in toxics because one time they called up it was about six months later they hadn't called back but not, it's always important for an organization to call back people who offer to volunteer mm -hmm. but about six months later they called and said well there's a farmer near Eugene who's doing his agriculture without pesticides and we are wondering if you would go out and interview him and write it up. And that was the start of eight years with Northwest Coalition for Alternatives to Pesticides. I eventually, they, they asked if I would complete a booklet that had been started by another person who was now working on her forestry dissertation at Oregon State and said, would you finish it? It tells citizens about how to know about herbicides, the, what the chemical names mean, what their trade names mean, what they do, what different damage they cause, whether cancer or nerve damage or miscarriages. And I, at that time, didn't know anything about any toxics really. So this was actually, this is so long ago, it was actually before you just looked up books in the library on a computer. I went to the University of Oregon library to the card file yep. <laughs> and went to H for herbicides and P for pesticides and just took books home. And I actually spent a year reading all about pesticides and what the damage they did and how they worked their way into our systems, what damage they did to fish, to birds, everything. And so that started my eight years at Northwest Coalition for Alternatives to Pesticides and it started my connection with toxics. That's awesome. I'm so excited to be talking to you right now. I can't even imagine. <laughs> I'm so excited because you you don't even know how much you've changed this little lady's life. I mean, inadvertently, you have stepped in in a role that you didn't even realize you had. So thank you so much for sitting here and speaking with me because I feel very honored to have you here chatting with me today. So take thanks for taking the time out. No. So I read something, and maybe you can explain this to me a little bit and to the listeners out there. It's about a highly toxic herbicide, and it was banned by the EPA and later replaced with something else. I'm going to have you tell us about what those are and what the difference is between an herbicide and a pesticide. The chemicals that I'm talking about, and I, I wrote out 245. I don't know if it's if that's how you say it. Um, but it's 245T that was banned uh, by the EPA, and then it was later replaced, replaced by 24D. So what, what are those? Well, pesticide is actually the umbrella term. And so an herbicide, which kills plants, is a pesticide. 
a pesticide is the, the, the term for all these different kinds of chemicals that kill living organisms that we don't like and regard as pests. So there's herbicides that kill plants, there's insecticides that kill insects, there's rodenticides that kill rodents, and you'll recognize the I-C-I-D-E, the aside as part of homicide Ooh. and suicide. It's all about killing. And so pesticide is the term that refers to all of them. So the difference between 245T and 24D are two herbicides. And they actually were being used at the same time. And they were mixed together and were what was called Agent Orange mm -hmm. being sprayed over Vietnam and Cambodia. But they were also being sprayed over the communities of Western Oregon because the Forest Service and private land owners would clear cut trees for lumber and then they would spray the ground to kill everything, all other plants that might compete with little new Douglas fir seedlings, which is what they wanted to grow for the commercial purposes. Well, when they did this spraying over the forest or over BLM lands, it also landed on the communities. Even today, it's still going on with private land companies. So at the beginning, in the late 70s, this Agent Orange mixture was being sprayed over Oregon. And in fact, the U.S. had stopped using it over Cambodia and Vietnam. And they were still using it in the U.S.? Yes. The reason 245T was eventually banned was because of activists in the coastal areas of Oregon who had learned that 245T was extremely toxic because of a contaminant called 2378 tetrachlorodibenzodioxin which people call dioxin, although there's many other dioxins. But 245T had such a toxic contaminant in it that at very, very, very low doses, it caused miscarriages. And some activists, it's a wonderful story uh, of the activism that ended this here in Oregon because they reported this to the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, who eventually came out and did a study and found that, yes, miscarriages were rising right after aerial spraying of these herbicides mm -hmm. in the forest. But those same miscarriages that were not rising in Portland, where they weren't aerial spraying, mm -hmm. And they weren't rising as much in Eastern Oregon where other herbicides were being used. So that led to the banning of 245T. 
but 2,4-D continued to be being sprayed. And eventually activists in Oregon through Northwest Coalition for Alternatives to Pesticides and Citizens Against Toxic Spray and Southern Oregon Citizens Against Toxic Spray, all these groups really fought this until the Forest Service no longer sprayed aerially over communities. So just like Beyond Toxics has led to the closing of J.H. Baxter and other dealing with other problems, citizens got together and got this banned. And what these two herbicides do, and 2,4-D does, is kills broad-leaved plants and not grasses or trees. So farmers and foresters spray it and homeowners spray it to get like dandelions out of their grass lawn or broadleaf trees out of the forest so just dug fir will grow or weeds out of a cereal crop like wheat. So ends up being used a lot and it's associated as well with cancer and with immune suppression and with birth defects. So I loved always the name of Northwest Coalition for Alternatives to Pesticides because it was always about that there are alternatives to using pesticides. And that's true, of course, for all toxics. There's almost always an alternative that is better for the world, for humans, for other species, for the water, everything. So we always worked on alternatives. <clears throat> and it doesn't mean no toxics are in our lives or that we don't use. Mm -hmm. or, but the vast majority of toxics in our world don't need to be used. Mary, is 2,4-D Roundup? No. It's not. It's a different one. That's a that's a common name of the chemical is called glyphosate. But no, it's a that's a different, and it works differently. Glyphosate works by a surfactant that's in the mixture helps bring it into the leaf, and it does it behaves differently with the plants. So some herbicides kill grasses and not the broadleaf plants. Some herbicides kill unwanted plants in lakes. There's all kinds of uses for herbicides. And they tend to be broad spectrum, which means they kill a lot of plants or a insecticides tend to be ones that are broad spectrum and they kill a lot of insects because there's more money to be made if you are selling an herbicide that will be can be used in all kinds of situations rather than developing an herbicide that would be very specific to a very specific weed that you need to get rid of so they tend to be 
just broadly damaging to the world as a whole. Well, you know, my father-in-law, well, both my dad and my father-in-law were in Vietnam. And so was my best friend's dad. And my my father-in-law and my best friend's dad both ended up getting prostate cancer. Yeah. You know, right now we are, and I, I haven't really been talking about that much to my husband, but right now we are concerned because that's something that could be passed on. And so right now my husband is doing a whole bunch of genetic testing to see, you know, if he's prone to any type of prostate or, or any type of cancer. But it's interesting to me that dioxin has made its way into my life in a couple different ways, you know, with, with my daughter and with my best friend's dad and with my father-in-law, it's carelessness and hearing you talk about all of this and the power of activists coming together, it gives me chills because it's the power of community. That's how we get things done. Yes, there's laws. Yes, there's policies, but we can't do that without the people. So people like us, people like you, people like we're going to talk about further on in the conversation. But I want to know, is all that aerial spraying that was done in Western Lane County and Western Oregon, did that influence the model of community toxics right to know um, that was developed in 1996? Nope. That really came about by a situation more akin to J.H. Baxter. What happened was there was a newspaper article in Eugene Register Guard, and it started with the line, so you thought you might have some say over whether a chip manufacturing facility will be built in the wetlands in West Eugene and be given a large tax break. Well, you don't. The deal's done. You know, that's a a phrasing. That's a phrasing of how, and it turned out Hyundai had worked kind of behind the scenes, not in a public decision process, to build a chip factory in a rural part of Eugene on the west side, right next to the West Eugene wetlands. And some citizens were pretty outraged, you know. They knew nothing about this. So one of the things we did, well, and it was actually started by, I think, Bern Johnson, who's the head of Environmental Law Alliance Worldwide in Eugene now, and he was at the time too, but he he thought maybe the city council would require Hyundai to tell what toxics were coming out of its smokestack. Mm-hmm. But the city said, there's no rules. We can't make them tell us. So Byrne got a number of people together to put on a public meeting. If the town if the town council wasn't, city council wasn't going to have a public meeting, then we'd have one anyways. And I was asked to describe 
how toxics work and why it's a problem in this town meeting. But I was absolutely astonished. There were several hundred people that came that were all pretty outraged that this company was coming in. It was going to be using toxics. It wasn't going to tell what they were. And that is what eventually led to the creation of the group called Citizens for Public Accountability, which was always all volunteer, never had a staff person. And its goal was to force Hyundai and other industry in Eugene to tell what was coming out their smokestacks. I love that. And I here's a here's that. a story you'll also love. Yeah. My husband, Obi, and I were both in Citizens for Public Accountability. And Obi became friends with Lisa Arkin mm-hmm. while she was a dance professor there. Ooh. And he loved the spirit of Lisa and said, why don't you come to some CPA, Citizen Public Accountability meetings? And she came to Citizens for Public Accountability, started learning about all these toxics that Hyundai could be putting out their smokestack and joined in the effort to get this toxics use law passed in Eugene. And that's how Lisa got connected up with toxics. That's awesome. She she did she didn't tell me that part. <laughs> Lisa's very private, so yeah. thank you for thank you for sharing that. Um, yeah, and- she was in she was in Obi's office one afternoon, and he said, "You know, I think I think you'd like the people at CPA." We were meeting every week to do. It was a big job to get this law passed. You know, we had to get ten thousand signatures to get it on the ballot, and then you well, you know, you all work on on legislative initiatives all the time. It takes a lot of work, but Lisa jumped right in. And of course, she's a natural as an activist because she has all the nerve in the world and she's (laughs) cheerful and civil and determined. And so that's that uh, little meeting with Obi in his office. That's my husband's, you know, Obi for O'Brien, um, started Lisa down the toxics road. That's awesome. And I do love that. I love everything about that. Um, I want to let the folks know real quick, because we're talking about community toxics right to know, but I want to refresh their memory of what that is. And that is, that requires industry and Eugene to report the toxins that they bring into their facility and send out from their facilities within the air, water, and soil or products. And that's the conversation that Mary and I were just having. We were talking about um, how that came about. Mary, was there any pushback with that? I mean, there had to have been industry that didn't want that. They wanted to keep the wool over our eyes at some point. Was there pushback from industry or from the community about this? There wasn't pushback from the community. I think it made fundamental sense to everyone that if any company is going to be spewing toxics out into the community, they ought to tell what it is. Mm -hmm. There was all the support we gathered from the community. 
And there was pushback from the company saying, oh, it was going to cost too much. It was going to be their private business as to what toxics they used. At the time, the you know, the the association of of businesses, they were opposed to it. Mm-hmm. But an interesting thing, and it's an interesting thing to remember when you're doing activism. One resident out in Western Eugene happened to have a friend who was a graphic designer in New York. And she asked him to do a logo for our campaign to get the law. And it became what we put on sweatshirts and signs and leaflets and everywhere. We used the same logo, which was, it looks like a fish with an X for the eye, so you know it's dead. And the words above it is, ignorance is toxic. <laughs> Meaning, if we don't know, it's bad for us for to not know what toxics are in the community. Well, the reason I tell this story is that after we won the campaign and the law was passed, someone from the business community said to Obi, you know, when we saw that logo, that drawing, we knew we were going to lose. Nice. It was so recognizable and it showed so clearly what we were facing with toxics. People bought sweatshirts just because they liked the logo. Mm-hmm. You know, it and so we just had this very simple drawing all over Eugene and it was extremely effective. I wonder where I could find one of those sweatshirts. Oh, I don't know if any <laughs> exist. Um, after the after the phone call, I'm going to take a picture fo- photo of it. Otis yeah. still wears one of the te- the sweatshirts with it, and Lisa will remember it clearly. Um, it really reminds us that as humans, we're pretty visual. Mm-hmm. And if we can make maps, if we can make really understandable charts, if we can make really effective symbols and and pictures, that goes a long way. We just need to remember to be artists in our work. And if we're not artists, I'm not an artist, then find one because they know how to convey what you're trying to say. So could you tell us about how all of that influenced the creation of Oregon Toxics Alliance, which is now Beyond Toxics? Well, that is a real clear story because once we've passed this toxics use right to know law in Eugene, it the state legislature passed a law that said no other community could have such a law. Whoa. So even though this is an extremely useful law to have, 
no other community can have it. And at that point, we realized we were too small. We had worked, we had worked so hard on getting this law in Eugene, and we were all volunteers, and we weren't big enough, we weren't strong enough to prevent that legislation from being passed statewide. And so at that point, we thought we need, and it used to be called Oregon Toxics Alliance, as Lisa explained in, in her podcast, it was kind of like, never again are we going to be so small that we can't protect more of Oregon. And so that's how Oregon Toxics Alliance got formed, which led to Beyond Toxics. That's awesome. You know, sometimes I say, and I was just saying this about Lisa, but something happened recently and we were in a meeting and Lisa was like, well, they weren't happy about this or that. And um, I was like, well, they don't realize that you bite. You're sweet. You look really sweet, but sometimes you bite. I think we all bite sometimes and we need to, we need to take a bite out of, <laughs> we need right. to take a bite out of society sometimes and say, Hey, take a look at this, what's going on. So yeah, I mean, I can see how Oregon Toxics Alliance would sound like you're trying to be friends with the toxics people. So I was excited for Lisa to tell me where that came from. And I just wanted to hear it from you too. Right. Um, Mary, you're also an author. Could you tell us about your book, Making Better Environmental Decisions, an Alternative to Risk Assessment? And if your work in Eugene was a form of inspiration for that book? Yes, absolutely. Because once I got into the world of toxics with Northwest Coalition for Alternatives to Pesticides and the Toxics Use Right to Know law and aerial spraying of pesticides to kill the gypsy moth and so on, I kept running into what are called risk assessments, which are okay, let's make this quantitative. We'll say if a test shows this toxic is this toxic and only this amount gets in your food and only this amount lands on your skin and you're an adult or a child and you drink this amount in your water, it all shows it's safe because you don't get that much through your skin. You don't get that much in your food. And it's a way of saying, how much of something damaging can you do, in this case, toxics, and it'll be okay. And that's just the wrong question. Risk assessment can be used in so many situations. And I saw it being used in so many situations against communities. They use risk assessment in, in, say, endangered species. How many of this spotted owl do you need before it goes extinct? So we can cut this amount of forest and we'll still have enough spotted owls left. Or 
how much of this toxic can be used in this factory and only one in a million cancers will be caused. I mean, you see risk assessment everywhere and the US became a real leader in it. It would involve numbers of how toxic it was, where it was, how it entered systems. And then after you pile all these numbers together, you come out with the amount that's okay to be exposed to. And I knew that was the wrong question. So I started looking at the alternative to risk assessment. And the alternative to risk assessment is asking the different question, which is how little of this damage do we have to cause? How little of this toxic is needed? So that's the what the book was about. And it's really a series of stories of how, why risk assessment is used, why industry likes it, why it's no good for communities, and what are examples of where people have approached problems differently than with risk assessment. So it grew out of initially risk assessment for pesticides, but then I saw it being used in all kinds of situations. In fact, I remember like one of the stories was it was found that Dacthol, which is a, an herbicide, was getting in the water in Eastern Oregon, in the groundwater where onions were being raised because Dacthol was being used as to kill weeds among the onions. And when they first did a risk assessment, it looked like it was way too toxic. So they changed some numbers in the formula, including taking children out of the formula. And so lo and behold, it didn't look so toxic. Mm -hmm. And I saw that being done over and over and over. So risk assessment can sound like it's a rational and scientific way to approach how much of a toxic is okay, but it's the wrong question to begin with. You went on to tell a story of a woman in an icy river and that she needed to get to the other side. There were three risk assessors. There was a cardiologist. The cardiologist says she doesn't have a heart condition and that she'll be fined across the river. Chances of having a heart attack is one in 10 million. There's also a toxicologist and the toxicologist says, that's only water, it's not toxic. She'll be fined across. There was an EPA rep and he says, she's not working in a workplace with lots of benzene or being a migrant worker in a field with pesticides. This is nothing. She's safe to cross. The woman says, I'm not doing it. I am not crossing the river. And they show the numbers. The assessors say, well, she's just a woman. She doesn't understand the numbers. They show and add up all the numbers and they say, your risk is one in, in one in 30 million that you're going to die crossing the river. 
You should just cross the river. The woman says, I'm not crossing the river. And the assessors say, why? She points upstream and she said, because there's a bridge. <laughs> I loved that. I wanted to incorporate it in our talk so much because I loved it because there's, you know, there are better and less harmful and toxic ways that we can live together in this world with industry. And um, I, I'm sorry to say that I have not read your book, um, but I will. You know, I think you would enjoy it because it really is stories. And, you know, it even has the story. I don't know if you remember when a rocket ship went up into the sky and it had a school teacher in it. Mm -hmm. And school children were looking all over the nation, were looking at it. I was one of them. No kidding. I well, was the, in seventh grade. I was in my seventh grade science class. Oh and my. It, we were watching the whole thing. We were super excited because of teacher. We were like, wow, this is going to be great. And our seventh grade little eyes saw the whole explosion and the wail that my teacher let out. I'll never forget. And, you know, as a child, I didn't really understand what that impact was. I mean, I knew that she was losing her family. Her family had lost their mother and, and students lost their teacher. But yeah, go go right ahead. I didn't mean to go on a tangent with that. But what were well, you that's fascinating. You were one of those children because the night before they were deciding whether they should send the rocket up the next morning, but the weather was going to be colder than they had planned on. And some of the engineers said, "Don't send the rocket up because we don't know for sure." but we don't know whether the O-rings on some, some, some ring within the system can withstand the cold. And the company or whoever wanted the rocket to go up said, what's the risk? And they said they couldn't tell the exact risk, but they were worried that the O-rings could fail. And it was decided the risk was so small, they'd send the rocket up. So that rocket went up on the basis of some saying, oh, the risk is small. So that was a risk assessment. So there's stories like that in the book. And it's an older book now. You know, what was it? Maybe 2000? Yeah. But the stories are the same, and what it it helps you see, start seeing it all around you, where people are asking the wrong question, and I think it it helps you be a better citizen. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I think, and it's it's an easy book to read. So I saw it on Amazon. That's when I was googling you around. Lisa calls me the Google Whisperer. Yeah. Find yeah, you can probably get it for 50 cents, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I saw it on Amazon. So yeah. Speaking of, of risk assessment, the OHA had done analysis of cancer rates in the neighborhood right by J.H. Baxter. And as a reminder to you folks, J.H. Baxter is the wood treatment plant in West Eugene that is no longer in operation. Operation shut January 31st of 2022. Um, so they're no longer in operation, but they, the OHA had done a cancer analysis and they found high levels of lung cancer. Well, 
BT asked there to be another analysis and in this investigation to include registry from 2006 to 2018, where they found high levels of lung and Hodgkin's lymphoma. And I got to tell you, sitting in meetings and seeing this census go up to 2018, and that's when my daughter was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma, mm. it's hard to see little stick figures on there and know yes. that my child was was one of those. Yes. So I bring a different perspective to these meetings because yes, I work for Beyond Toxics. Yes, yes, I'm a staff member, but first and foremost, I'm in a, I'm a community member from West Eugene. So I bring a perspective in there, like a human side of it, that it's a personal experience. So in a meeting, when we saw all those stick figures at one point, I had to say, hey, you guys need to remember that these are people. These are not just little stick figures. These are not just statistics. One of those little people is my daughter, you know, and bringing those sort of bringing that into conversation so that people can see, yes, there's somebody directly that we know um, who were in meetings with that is impacted by this. My whole life's work has changed because of my daughter getting sick. I like to see a silver lining in things. And I know that what my family had gone through and what my best friend's uh, family had gone through with, with cancer is something that I knew I was going to have to share out. I didn't know that I was going to have to share it out so soon or use my long, long name, Arjury Arberry Barabo. I didn't know I was going to be <laughs> having to say that a bunch of times, but whatever. Um, so, you know, being able to be in those meetings as a community member and as Beyond Toxics, having us in there and saying to them, hey, listen, we need you to do this again. We need you to check to see what's going on out in West Eugene. And they did. And I found this in my research. And I didn't I didn't know this. I didn't know that in 96 to 2002, they found higher rates of brain cancer in that area. Mm. And we know two families had have been impacted by brain cancer. And one is a very young gentleman, and he has an extremely rare uh, brain cancer where they can't even treat it down in Eugene. He has to come up to Portland to go to OHSU and kind of still leaves them all scratching their heads. Well, he grew up right across the street from J.H. Baxter and playing in the water and playing in the soil and eating the vegetables and everything that his family, I mean, that, that was their home. So they did regular I'm at home stuff. There was another gentleman that lost his life to brain cancer, and he liked to dig in his garden. He liked to, that was his favorite thing to do was garden. And he also lives right or lived. I, I'm we're in close relationship with his wife, who still lives where her husband lost his life. So during your career, Mary, have you met anyone who's experienced a cancer diagnosis? Oh. I don't think you get to be 77 years old and you haven't met a lot of people. Uh, I'm one of them. You are. I, I am. I and it's a, the story is is pretty interesting. It's breast cancer. Well, I was in the Toxics Use Right to Know law had been passed, and a committee had been made in Eugene with three industry people, three right to know people, and seventh that was chosen by both groups. And that's the seven members of the meeting. Well, we had been meeting that day 
And we always ended on time on our committee meetings. But this day, they said, we've just got a little bit longer to go. Can Does anyone uh, mind if we go on a little bit longer? And I said, I actually have to get to a doctor's appointment. And the doctor's appointment was to do a biopsy of a lump I had in my breast. And earlier that morning, I had completed an op-ed for the New York Times with Sandra Steingraber about a study of a hazardous waste dump in Canada where the study said it concluded there was no risk to the neighborhood. But if you actually read the data in the study itself, it showed there was a risk. So in the morning, I had worked on a op-ed piece about toxics. And in the afternoon, I was at this toxics right to know committee. And I may I did have to get the meeting ended because I had this doctor appointment. And at then I went to the doctor's appointment and uh, with the biopsy. Well, it wasn't a biopsy. He decided to take the whole lump out. Mm-hmm. And he was going to send it to a lab for analysis. And when he first pulled the lump out, he said, I think it looks great. And I was, you know, putting my clothes back on in the room. And he comes back in and he says, well, sit down. You've got cancer. Oh, shoot. And I was about to be taking that evening some high school students up on Spencer's Butte because they were graduating from high school and they had volunteered with me in Hell's Canyon. And I called Obi and I said, look, Obi, I've got cancer, but we've got to get the soda pop for meeting these kids to go up. (laughs) On Spencer's Butte, I'll think about it tomorrow. And so Mary went up the went up the hill. And of course, the kids are all excited about graduating. And I just threw myself into the evening with them and just figured, well, tomorrow morning I'll figure out what to do. So it's a it's a, a little story from Eugene. Wow. And, and, you know, I think a lot of people sometimes when they find they have cancer think, why me? And I knew enough, having been working with Northwest Coalition for Alternatives to Pesticides and on the toxics use right to know law and so on. I thought, you know, why not me? You know, one mm-hmm. in eight women were getting breast cancer. Why would I expect to be, you know, not get it? So, yep, I have experienced a lot of people with a cancer diagnosis. I'm sorry to hear that, Marion. I'm glad that you're here to talk with us. I can't believe you were thinking about soda pop. (laughs) You got a a cancer diagnosis. You're thinking about soda pop. I mean, that that shows your character right there. Um, But I think the kids would have been okay without the soda pop if you needed to just go. (laughs) No, I didn't want to ruin their evening. Yeah. So yeah, a lot of cancer, uh, cancer is, it's been around too much in my life and lives of, of folks that I know, including you now, 
you know, what's amazing to me is that if there had been a cancer, a, an analysis back done way back in 1996 to 2002, where they found that brain cancer, if there had been brain cancer by J.H. Baxter, if there had been an investigation of risk assessment back then, how many lives would have been, could have been on the road to being safer? They knew about this a long time ago. And J.H. Baxter just kept on getting a fine and not paying it or getting a slap on the hand or, you know, now they have this three over $300,000 in fines and stuff. And they're saying that they don't have the money to pay for it. Well, $300,000 is not worth anybody's life. That's right. a drop in the bucket for them. Right. And for them to say, we don't, we, we can't afford to pay for it. Well, there's a lot of lives that have paid for the damage that you've caused. And I was in a meeting with somebody the other day that said something that was like, oh, I'm going to start saying that because we say so much about vulnerable populations. This population's vulnerable. Well, she said, I don't like to say vulnerable. I like to say made to be vulnerable because that puts this weakness on folks that isn't there. I mean, they're, they're in this situation because of the area that they live in. They live in an area that, you know, they can buy a home there and it's just a really toxic area. And it's, it's, sad to me because I really do love West Eugene and I love that it's thriving and that it's 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 a small community but now through all this J.H. Baxter stuff that's going on and some of the the projects that we've been doing out in West Eugene I think that folks are seeing now that there's this power and community that is unstoppable what do you think about all the groundbreaking work that Beyond Toxics has done I mean that you started what what do you think about what we're doing out in West Eugene well, I don't give me credit where credit isn't due. It was really Lisa really paying attention to folks like you that were talking about problems there. And I think it's incredibly important that the Eugene community came together enough to pay attention to a neighborhood that is lower income. Mm -hmm. Too often, it's the wealthy neighborhoods that raise an issue when one of their kids right. is getting brain cancer. And they're often more connected to people at the hospital or to people at the university. And they're more often in a better situation to grab hold of the problem by the horns and wrestle with it. There's a saying, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. <laughs> Too often, people of lower income or different ethnic group are not simply not at the table. And as a result, they're on the menu to get a hazardous waste facility or a wood treatment facility or aerial spraying. Beyond Toxic's work is incredibly important for the people involved, for the organizing throughout the community and throughout the state, and for caring about bees and caring about fish. And all of these, the lower income, the bees, the fish, the ethnic groups, 
the less understood groups. They all need to be at the table. And that's what Beyond Toxic does. Aww, we do. We do. And your your influence, and I forgot to mention Anita Johnson when I was naming off everybody that that uh, that started Oregon Toxics Alliance, but the influence from you, Anita Johnson, Michael Kerrigan, and Steve Johnson, it's just, it's created such a dynamic organization that I feel blessed to be part of because not only am I working with a great group of folks, I get to do something about what's going on in West Eugene and I get to take back the power that was taken from my family by facilities like J.H. Baxter. So I know that I'm, I keep saying that, thank you, thank you for being here, but I, I really do mean that because your influence on West Eugene and Eugene as a whole and the impact that you have had on my life, you didn't even know, but the impact that you have had on my life has changed my life to be on the other end of toxics. I mean, I was the one that was putting the toxics on people when I was a stylist. So I've swapped roles and now yeah. I'm here, <laughs> I'm, here I'm, I'm doing different things now. I bet you're a hell of an organizer. I would love to see you at work in a community. Oh, I, I love to it. follow you around for a day. This was not, this was not me. I'm very introverted. I'm super shy. I was able to be like, all right, behind the chair because that was my my zone. You know, I was inviting people into my my zone, but public speaking, podcasts, just all of the things that I'm doing, I was living what I wanted to be with a hairstylist. So I really know how to turn it on, I think, because of being a hairstylist. You have to be so um, engaged and a little animated. So I think that that's carried over into Absolutely. my work. Yeah, absolutely. I, I have a funny story to tell you. One time, uh, there's a international organization, Pesticide Action Network, that's international. And one time I was at a meeting and there was an African-American woman, I mean, an, not African-American woman, an African woman. And I just casually said to her during a break, I said, so how did you... How how did you get organ? You know, she was organizing her community against some agricultural pesticide. I can't remember, but at any rate, she said, "Well, when I was a little kid in school, one of the kids did something that she got in trouble for, and she was going to be in big trouble, and they were coming for her." So I said to a whole bunch of kids, "Let's all run away." And they all <laughs> ran away from the school. <laughs> Eventually, the school just gave up on worrying about the little one that had done something. And she thought, that taught me. She said, I knew I was an organizer. <laughs> <laughs> That's cute. That's cute. Yeah, you know, I think being, being the youngest and being the only girl, I kind of had to blaze my own yeah, right. road there. So, um and you running know. your own business and like you say being being right up front with people and engaging and so on you know all, i bet every every single one of the people in beyond toxics has something that they're drawing on from their past to mm -hmm. be the the organizers that you are well thank you mary 
Um, that's really awesome. Uh, I love my job. It doesn't feel like a job, especially when I get to do things like this. Like I just, I get to talk to people sometimes for part of my job. And it's amazing to me that I get to just talk. <laughs> it's pretty cool. And investigate because I am the Google whisperer after all. I'm good. <laughs> so Mary, what, what was one of your favorite things, um, not only working to better West Eugene, but Eugene as a whole, what was one of your favorite things? I really do love being with other species as well as people. And there was an organizing effort to prevent a highway, a freeway, really, from being built right through West Eugene wetlands. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that stopped that was a little endangered butterfly, uh, Fender's Blue Butterfly, and a particular plant that was rare that it had to lay its eggs on. And that was fun because I was getting once again to work for the Eugene community, but I was getting to go out in the field and go see a fender blue butterfly and look for eggs laid on the the lupin that it needed. And so it's a it's a nice memory of that that project. One of the things that doesn't have to do with organizing that I particularly love about Eugene is how the cottonwoods smell when they open their buds in the spring, because we would ride our bike between our home in North Eugene to into Eugene for work and meetings. And there was a particular time in the spring when those buds were opening and the little caps on them were being tossed off and the whole air smelled wonderful. And I, I love living in Southern Utah, but I don't have that experience anymore. <laughs> yeah. It's, it, I mean, I've never been to Utah. It's, it's beautiful in a different way. It um, is. Yeah. I mean, I, I would love to, to visit sometime and I, I'm, jealous that there's snow somewhere that you're seeing snow happen right now because I'm thriving in the fall in the winter I like cold and rainy <laughs> so I wish there was snow outside right now too for us but oh well we have a little guest house so if you ever want to come here oh, oh an it's just a one room it's just a one room you know with a bathroom oh. and a bed but that's all you need I'm not going to forget about that <laughs> <laughs> so Mary what kind of advice would you give to folks like me that want to be or uh, are interested what kind of advice would you give us about the longevity of a career in environmental justice advocacy and activism main advice is do it with other people then you don't get so discouraged, you don't get so angry, you don't get so beside yourself frustrated. I think working with others on a campaign, like to get the toxics use right to no law, like ending J.H. Baxter, like getting rid of pesticides that take away bees, 
always do it with other people. You'll have more fun. You'll last longer. You will have less stress. Doesn't mean you're going to (laughs) win. Or it doesn't mean it's not going to take 20 years to accomplish something. But a group like Beyond Toxics is there's staff, there's volunteers, there's citizens who are grateful, who get information. It's all people working together. So that's what I think makes for longevity. Never trying to just do it alone. Yeah, it's a team. It's a team. It takes a team. So something you said, Mary, was, I always like thinking what could be done that would be good for the world. And during my research, in my sites, you've surpassed that quote and have made a lasting impact on the world. Do you remember saying that? And is that something you carried with you throughout your 40-year career? No. (laughs) I don't remember saying it, but it's a good idea. (laughs) See, I find all the things. I find all the things. So, Mary, is there anything else you want to share with us before we close out? No, except that my wish is for Beyond Toxics to continue to thrive, do things like your Be Jazzy gathering, to do fun things, to help the world. Yeah, it's Beyond Toxics is a wonderful organization. You all are good to each other. You're cheerful. You're a diverse group. You're determined. And you clearly thank each other for the work you're doing and keep each other's spirits up. And it's just uh, one of the really, really good organizations. Thank you, Mary. And thank you so much for joining me on the show today. It truly has I mean, honestly, been a honor to sit and talk with you. And I've learned so much, not only about the formation of Beyond Toxic, but just about your life and some of the amazing, amazing work that you've done. I was really interested about uh, the herbicides and the pesticides because we haven't had anybody to really talk about that on the show. Um, so I think that that's something I'd like to dive a little bit deeper in. So well, thank you. Good. Thank you for being on the show. And thank you for, and thanks to Crystal, um, who's going to take all our ums out. (laughs) She's amazing. (laughs) Um, So again, I am Arjuri, and thank you for listening to Why We Do the Work. I'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye.